Hello, and welcome to How Many Geese. He's Jack Baddams. And he's Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a podcast about nature that doesn't take itself too seriously, then we are the natural selection. On today's episode. <laughs> you're just going out, picking them up, putting them in a bucket, get a sharpie, write some numbers, have some party blowers. You're off, cane toad racing. But <laughs> never thought of trying to do sound effects in this segment. Please don't make it a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think giant African land snails knows what's at the end of a table they're on. Never mind the concept of Hawaii. Have you heard the feral cat news? Have I? No. This is the news from earlier this year. I hope that they're bad. <laughs> that we'll get on to that. Um, that Chicago decided to release a thousand feral cats uh, to try and end its long-running reputation as the rat capital of the US. So this is called the Cats at Work program and aims to take feral cats and put them into little outdoor colonies with a registered caretaker who makes sure that they've got food, water, and shelter. They're all neutered, uh, vaccinated, to make sure that they're as safe as possible. Is this the worst idea that's <laughs> ever happened? Because it sounds like the worst idea so, that's ever happened. I just want to... Right, cards on the table, everyone. I'm a bird guy, if you haven't picked that up already. And... I'm contractually obliged to say that free roaming cats are a terrible idea and one of the one of my sort of big bugbears. I just want to hit you with some facts. So cats have contributed to the extinction of 63 species of mammal, bird and reptile and continue to affect a wide variety of all sorts of stuff. Their ecological impacts are so critical that the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, lists domestic cats as one of the worst non-native species. In the US and Canada, predation by cats is the number one direct human caused threat to birds. And I want to say human caused, because if ever I, I'm going to, I'm, I'm getting more into this rant now. Whenever I mention cats, people go, well, humans cause a lot worse problems than cats. And it's like, the cats are a human problem. The yeah. cats are just as human a problem as us going out there and shooting something with a gun. Yeah. Like, they wouldn't be there without us. So... Except they're guns that don't <laughs> get put in a box. They're guns that think for themselves. They're guns yeah. that go about the place. That you, you know? can't control yeah. as easily. Um, so, US and Canada, number one human cause threat to birds. And there's tens of millions of outdoor cats that kill approximately 2.4 billion birds a year across the US and Canada. In the UK, it's estimated there's about 8 million cats that kill about 100 million known animals, including 27 million birds, but no one knows the real number. So in Chicago, they've had this brilliant idea of releasing 1,000 feral cats to, uh, to deal with the rat problem. And of course, everybody's saying, they're not just going to eat the rats, they're going to eat everything else. But it's interesting that you say is this the world's worst idea? Because that's pretty much where I'm leaving the sort of cat thing. What this is called is a biological control, where you um, use another animal, i.e. biology, to try and defeat something that you want removed from the ecosystem. And there are great and famous examples of biological controls gone wrong across the world. Would it be safe to say that all examples are of it going wrong? <laughs> yes, it probably would be. <laughs> now, there is one that we'll come on to where it sort of went right a little bit. But I'm going to start with the one, giving a bit more detail on the one that you're all probably screaming about as you're listening to this. So you'll know of one. It's the most famous example of a biological control gone wrong. And it is, Roddy. 
Cane toads. The cane toads. Yeah. So let's just delve into the world of the cane toads, just in case you need a little bit more detail on this. So this is probably the most famous example of a biological control gone wrong. It's uh, you kind of taught it in ecology or whatever. It's just it's a very very famous example. It's in The Simpsons. It is. They did sort of a whole episode. Yeah. Know, like hung around it, playing on it. Yeah. Um, so in the 1930s. Australia was having a problem with two native species of beetle that were having negative impacts on the sugarcane crops. And the adult cane beetles would eat the crop's leaves, but the main problem is the larvae which feed on the roots. And they've got... Uh, it's worth maybe adding that the sugarcane is an introduced agricultural crop. crop. It's not native to Australia. So, it'd been, you know, the conditions are good so they can farm it there, grow it there, but then the beetles started eating the crop. Yes, yeah. So the adult cane beetles have a heavy exoskeleton and their eggs and larvae are often buried deep underground which made them difficult to exterminate add to this the fact that using pesticides also eradicates harmless insects mm -hmm. the decision that they came to was to use cane toads in replacement of pesticides so it sort of came from a good place you were like we don't want to we don't want to sort of napalm our sugarcane fields with pesticide because it's going to kill a lot of nice insects as well Actually, you're talking about, is there any, uh, has there been any successful biological control? There was a successful biological control that happened before the cane toads in Australia using a moth in controlling prickly pears. So, you know, like the famous prickly pear cactus? Yeah. That became invasive in Australia. Right. Brought over from North America. Spread widely across Australia. So they brought in a moth. Right. That successfully didn't, I don't know if it eradicated, but seriously suppressed the prickly pear problem so they were like great we've already proven that this works let's wang over some cane toads a moth beat a cactus yeah well we have like there's um the thing that's killing a lot of the pine trees in north america there's like a leaf borer oh yeah um, there's all sorts of little things that can affect i know but just there's something <laughs> cacti are normally presented as like incredibly tough Resilient. spiky exist in extreme conditions and to think a moth Cactoblastis cactorum is the, the species. Okay, well, that's... And it certainly blastis those cactums. So, in June 1935, buoyed by the success of Cactoblactis, they thought, we're going to unleash the cane toad upon the beetles. I just think about the sentence you said. Buoyed by the success of the Cactoblastis on the cactus, they released the cane toads for the beetles. For the beetles, yeah. Well, I mean... That's a sci-fi sentence. I feel like so many of our stories end up taking us to Australia, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's June 1935. 102 cane toads were imported from Hawaii, where I should say they're already a non-native species. Yeah. Cane toads are... Uh, Amazon or something. Yeah, they? they're sort of central. I've seen them in Honduras yeah. in their native range. And they were bred in captivity for a couple of years until they'd got 62,000 toadlets that they then released in areas of northern Queensland. And then, I mean, the rest is then sort of history. <laughs> then it went south <laughs> fast. Very, very quick. Because since their release, they've rapidly multiplied. And now there's over 200 million of them. And they show no evidence of having any impact on the beetle that they were introduced to prey on. The beetle numbers remained exactly the same. And they had sort of zero measurable impact on the numbers of beetles. But massive measurable impact on pretty much everything else. To the point, and I'm now thinking really hard about this, trying to drag it up from the back of my head, that native species in Australia are having measurable their evolution is being changed by the mm, cane toads. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there's a species of snake which is evolving a smaller head mm. because 
any individual with a head big enough to swallow a cane toad would essentially die because the cane toads are poisonous. So this is one of the reasons why the toads are so bad in Australia is because they lay tens of thousands of eggs at once and they're covered in poison yeah. So this, the two main things about the cane toad is they eat everything except the things they're supposed to eat, oh, the beetles. Three things then. And they can't be eaten. Yeah. And they have tens of thousands of eggs yeah. at once. And they multiply ridiculously <laughs> fast, yeah. So yeah, there's definitely a snake. I'm pretty sure it's a snake where they've measured its head and yeah. it's going smaller or this the the gross size of this snake individual species being there's measured. A, there's a selection pressure basically to yeah. to make the snake smaller because the bigger ones are eating cane toads and dying. Yeah. But the cane toad, so introduced into northern Queensland and they've spread and spread fast and they're advancing from sort of east where Queensland is west across Australia. With the toads, so it's not just the animals that are evolving, uh, the animals that are living alongside them that are evolving, the toads themselves are evolving. The toads that are leading the line of this sort of Western invasion <laughs> are evolving longer legs, bodies, and faster movement to help them disperse and take advantage of the new habitat they find themselves in. So if you imagine the sort of distribution range map of the toads, you've got Australia on a map, You've got the cane toad distribution on that western edge as they're pushing west across the country. Those toads that are leading the line have got longer legs, larger bodies, so that they can move faster and exploit that new habitat. Because <laughs> <laughs> the middle of Australia is famously a massive desert. Yeah. Now I'm just imagining, do you know in Mad Max, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. right? Which started in Australia. The first one's a film there, I think. Anyway, and like all of the trucks and the cars, and they're all like weirdly engineered, and they've got spikes and big wheels and pumping fumes, and Flags they're just coming out of them and racing across the <laughs> desert, charging forward. That's now what I'm imagining this leading edge of the cane toad advance with these weird gangly toads <laughs> at a ferocious pace. Of 37 miles per year. That's what the spread is. <laughs> Just charging forward, flailing wildly across the, the red sand under the beating Australian sun. These amphibians which desperately need moisture to breathe. <laughs> there ha there has to be a point that they can't cross the outback. Yeah. There has to. There's no... So I think they're going across. When I say east to west, I think they're going across the northern, the northern bit. Northern bit. Uh, so they'll mainly eat insects, but will eat anything else that can fit in their mouth. Spiders, snails, small frogs, reptiles, mammals. Uh, and then, of course, they're poisonous to eat, as we said. And native predators aren't adapted to the poison. Many species that try and prey on them often die if they consume a big enough toad because it's poison sacs are so potent on the bigger ones that even giant saltwater crocodiles have been found dead with cane toads just hanging out of their mouth because they, they can't even eat them. But some species... Because we're now talking 70, 80, 90 even years on from the cane toads being released, mm. some species are starting to show behavioural changes to them. Uh, some species have been able to work out which bits you're able to eat. So black kites and Teresian crows will flip them over. I knew crows were going to make an entry here. Well, I mean, yeah, if any bird is going to If any bird out. is going to crack it, it's going to be a crow. So what, they, what they'll do is the, the kites and the crows will flip them over and attack the belly and the throat, which means that they avoid the poison glands and then they can just sort of eat around that. And Australian water rats will make really precise incisions to eat the hearts and the livers of the toads and avoid the poison glands. And there's a there's a video on YouTube that you can watch of this Australian water rat just like... What, with a scalpel? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bloop. Bloop. 
Perfectly eating around. <laughs> eating around. Yeah. Chopsticks. Yeah. Bucket. <laughs> Knife. Fork. <laughs> Salt. Yeah. <laughs> so there are some species that are are, are able to sort of uh, take the fight back to the cane toad. The brilliantly na- Australianly named, I should say, meat ant. It- <laughs> that is the most. That's the most Australian. And we've had quite a bit of Australia, like you said, it pops up a lot because it's essentially nature's thunderdome, <laughs> right? And the fact that they've got meat ant. <laughs> So the meat ant is immune to the toad's poison, and whereas native frogs and toads have natural reflexes of avoiding meat ants, they sort of hop away when the meat ants come, (laughs) the cane toad is so steadfast in its belief that its poison's going to work that it just sits there. But the meat ant is immune to the poison, so it just consumes the cane toad while it just sits there, like... I'm sure it's going to work any time now. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure yeah. the poison's going to kick in and the meat ant just devours it. I really want to hop away when the meat ant comes to be a line in some kind of blues song. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it seems like there's nothing that can be done to stop the cane toads invasion. Um, the only plans are potentially to try and release viruses that will knock back the cane toads or females that carry sterilized genes that they then pass on to the population and eventually those genes would proliferate and you'd You'd basically create a whole generation of cane toads that then can't breed anymore. Have you ever been to Australia? No. Okay. So I have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Felt like a really arsehole way to go into that all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, no, so I have been to Queensland. Yeah. And I remember a couple things because I was very young. One, gift shops, tourist gift shops, you could get like anything made out of cane toads. Right. Like cane toad wallets, cane toad this, cane toad that, cane toad. So I remember like cane toad purses and wallets and all little knick-knacky things, cane toad pens, cane toad this, trying to come up with stuff to do with them. So I've been there and seen like, yeah, daytime, it's like, oh, what a nice bit of Australian wilderness. And then yeah. nighttime comes and you shine a torch and it's like, oh, <laughs> damn, it is just alive with cane toads. And we should say like, they're big. Oh, yeah. Sort of dinner plate size. Oh, yeah. They, they more than fill a bowl, right? Like a cane toad, if it's sat in a bowl that you had your breakfast in, yeah. it would overfloweth they are, with toads. They're toad. huge. Yeah. There's big boys. And the other thing I remember, I was, again, like nine or ten, is we went to this bar. Not that I was getting taken around bars at the age yeah. of nine or ten <laughs> by my parents, but like it was this small, small town in Australia. It was just where like, whatever in the evening and they had cane toad racing right yeah because it's basically it's like any economy you can build on them build it on them because there's so many it's like if you can come up with something to do with cane toads yeah do it right and what this was was you know the little party blower things you're like and they like kind of shoot out almost like a tongue yeah sort of thing right this guy, who was proper like, G'day, we're in Australia, I've got the cane toads. <laughs> sorry to everyone in Australia, I'm really sorry. Please keep this thing. I really like your country. Um, got a load of cane toads in a bucket, put the bucket, flipped the bucket upside down on the table. Each cane toad had a number painted on it. And you'd basically pay like a couple quid to then be the jockey for like number one or whatever. Oh, and you would Which meant that. you got the beep, beep on a round table in the middle of the table. And then people would like boop, boop, boop at the cane toads to like poke them and whoever's cane toad jumped off the table first the won the bucket of money and that was that was cane toad racing that was you know late night queensland vibes um yeah like you say you gotta do something with them you know it, it wasn't a kind of place that had like 
doors and a wall. It's so hot there. It's just like yeah. open, open shacks, right? So open. So the cane toads are literally just on. You're just going out, picking them up, putting them in a bucket, get a Sharpie, write some numbers, have some party blowers. You're off cane toad racing, you know? It's like instant activity. Maybe we need some here. Well, let's. <laughs> <laughs> and then very, very finally on the cane toads, I saw a couple years ago someone, I don't know if this took off or proposing, but again, I think it's got to the point that it's like no idea is a bad idea anymore in Australia. It, yeah. Now, if you can come up with something to do with cane toads, yeah. the government will hear you. And I'm pretty sure I saw this article that someone, politician or otherwise, was proposing, you know how we have um, recycling bins, food waste bins in the street, yeah. basically having like a cane toad bin, <laughs> right. but that like blended them as they went in. Blend on entry. Yeah, to then take it away and be turned into fertilizer. I mean, so it's like scoop them up, blitz them, yeah. and then I mean it's pretty grim. But the other side, like we've said, is they are decimating, yeah. decimating this. And you'd open your door at night, and there would just be toads on toads on. You'd be wading through toads. Yeah, in some places. I, I've only ever I've only ever seen the sort of videos of them, uh, particularly people driving on roads at yeah. night, and just the amount yeah. of toads flooding the roads. Yeah. it's just insane. <laughs> So that's the cane toad, but this is by far not the only example of uh, biological control mm. gone wrong. So we're going to hop into a time machine Ooh. and we're going to go back into the 1800s to Hawaii, where we find a sugar industry facing problems with a growing rat population. Hello. Okay, so we're in Hawaii, 1800, sugar industry facing problems with the rats. The plantation owners, keen to avoid any further losses of revenue... Uh, and well-versed in taking things from native lands and putting them to work halfway across the world for their own selfish purposes, have decided they would try to eradicate the rats. What? Cats. Not cats. Oh! So it's got to be worse. Foxes. Not foxes. Rats. Is it a disease? Are any of these... No. not micro... they're, they're animals. Okay. I'll be incredibly impressed if you get this. Pigs. Nope. Cats, it's not dogs, it's not foxes, it's not pigs. You got them from India. Animal cobras. No, that oh. would have been cool. Um and probably better than this turned out. Indian one-horned rhino. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you, it is the small Asian mongoose. Yeah, I wasn't guessing that. So no, they yeah. took a load of mongoose. Mongoose? Mongai. How many mongoose? And brought them over from India and let them loose in the fields of Hawaii mm -hmm. to end the rat threat. However, this decision was an incredibly misinformed one because mm. the rats are nocturnal and spend all their days hidden away in nests. Uh, the mongoose don't, don't say it. are diurnal. Don't say it. He said it. <laughs> so the two animals never met each other. They just existed completely separately and the rat population proceeded to increase. And so did the mongoose population because they just ate everything else they came in contact with on Hawaii, Why? whether that be birds, turtles, and other reptiles, various small mammals. They just started eating everything else. The Hawaiian native people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much anything they could find, they were eating. And as the population of the mongoose grew... Jack, why do humans do bad things? I just... It's just... <laughs> And as the population of the mongoose grew, the islanders started putting bounties on their heads to try and slow the population. Um, but these are very intelligent, elusive, incredibly fast creatures that were very, very difficult to catch. And with no natural populations, the population continues to grow to this day and just devastating native animal populations from 
all those sort of taxonomic groups that we mentioned, uh, with some of them are now facing sort of near extinction because of the mongoose introduction. Oh they've also spread God. to, uh, final thing, the mongoose have spread to other islands as well. And even though there were only 72 which were initially introduced, the current number is obviously much, much more. Hawaii is going to sink under the weight of mongoose. Yeah, if climate change doesn't get it first, it'll be the mongoose <laughs> sinking it into the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. So we're going to stay on Hawaii, but we're going to jump forwards to 1955. So there's now mongoose everywhere. Yeah, we're knee deep in mongoose but there's also another invasive species running amok well the rats are still there the rats the rats are still there so you've still got your rats you've now got your mongoose who've never never met not you probably aren't even aware of each other's presence (laughs) um but there's now fucking giant african land snails everywhere oh my god (laughs) they've ended up with an invasion how did they get there (laughs) that is the least that is the least internationally aware animal. Yeah, because what I like... I don't a... think giant African land snails knows what's at the end of a table they're on. <laughs> Never mind the concept of Hawaii. Because what I like is when they talk about trying to um, trying to control the mongoose, it's like they're intelligent, elusive, incredibly fast and difficult to catch. And then another problem they have is giant African land snails, which, which is... none of those words can be used to describe. It's the opposite of every one of those words. Yeah. So they've got... Giant African land snails everywhere. Hawaii. But we don't know how they got there. But we don't know how they got there. I imagine... Someone must know. It's a pet thing. And as you know from the experience in your fish tank, being hermaphrodites doesn't take (laughs) too many snails to start reproducing exponentially. I have more snail trouble than I thought I'd have in my late 20s. (laughs) (laughs) So, you've got these giant African land snails everywhere. That's our pest problem. And Hawaii, in its infinite wisdom, we're going to introduce a biological control. Because the mongoose went so well. Because the mongoose went so well, we're going to try again. What would you use to try and control a land snail? I thought you might get this one based on fish tank experience. Is it? Oh, another snail. Another snail. Yeah. Yes, because I have assassin snails in my tank, which are very cool, just conceptually. Well, so I see your assassin snail, and I raise the wolf snail. So this is what they used in Hawaii. They got the rosy wolf snail, a.k.a. the cannibal snail. Those two words don't normally... <laughs> rosy and wolf are not normally, you know... <laughs> yeah, that's true. Adjacent yeah, in an animal so snail. It's a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? Yeah. So the rosy wolf snail is about sort of 7 to 10 centimetres long, an absolute lightning in snail terms. <laughs> We're talking 8 millimetres a second. Oh! This guy can just motor. Those snails are faster than the cane toads crossing Australia. Really? The cane toads are progressing at 37 miles a year. Yeah. If those snails could maintain 8 millimetres a second flat out, they'd do 252 kilometres a year. Jesus. (laughs) Such is their never-ending advance. As long as there's enough tasty snails on the other side of Australia. Yeah. Wow. So, they are, uh, as the name suggests, they like to eat snails. Although, they're not cannibal snails, because a cannibal snail is 
would be a rosy wolf snail eating a rosy, a rosy wolf, wolf snail. snail. You know, it would be like calling a peregrine falcon a cannibal bird because it eats pigeons. They're eating other species of snail. Oh, but hang on. Is there like some special Hawaiian snail which we didn't want it to eat and now it's uh, eating? Yeah, yes. 100%. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yes. And, there are a, and there's multiple. <laughs> um, so in 1955, 616 specimens were collected from Florida, that is of the cannibal snail, and sent to Hawaii where they released and flourished. And in a shockingly predictable turn of events... The cannibal snail didn't really do much damage to the giant African land snail, but did cause the decline of many native species. As a result, many tree snail species were hunted to extinction within the first year of the introduction of the rosy wolf snail. And it's now caused the extinction of an estimated eight native snail species in Hawaii. We've just got to stop interfering, haven't we? Can, though... Okay, obviously bad, obviously very sad. However... There must have been Hawaiian animals which were eating those snails. The land snails or the cannibal snails? No, the native species must have been part of a food chain. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. With them now gone, Mm -hmm. can the native fauna eat the cannibal snails? Or are they like poisonous like the cane toads? No, I don't think they're poisonous. In like a niche sense, obviously it's sad that the six snails are gone. Yeah. But is it kind of as catastrophic as poisonous toads where anything that eats them dies. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's obviously different levels, but I think with the yeah. wiping out of eight different snail species, yeah. that eight sort of niches that yeah, they've yeah, filed yeah, themselves yeah. into that you've replaced with sort of one predator. Yeah. So there's obviously going to be ramifications, but it's, we're not talking the same scale. As I'm just wondering if the cannibal snail is poisonous to anything that eats no, it, or no, if no, stuff can keep eating the cannibal yeah, snail. Yeah, things can eat the cannibal snail too. Um, so... On my search for sort of biological control failures, uh, I did find an interesting example of one that seems to have worked in some cases, but not in others. So, mosquitoes. Yep. How would you deal with mosquitoes? Swat them. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of swatting. What animal would be the best to release if you were going to take that strategy? Swatting Swatting mosquitoes. Like a whale in a chariot because the size of its flipper, the number of mosquitoes... I whale doing sort of a peck slap. Yeah, it's exactly. Just, swatting mosquitoes. just hire a load of whales to flap. <laughs> well, we are talking about something that is in the water because, of course, mosquitoes' larval stage is in the water. Yeah. So say hello to the little mosquito fish. Hello. So this is a tiny little guppy-looking fish, which, as its name suggests, eats freshwater larvae, uh, invertebrates, uh, and including some mosquito larvae. But that's that's sort of only a tiny percent of what it eats. So once again, we've sort of misjudged... This sounds like it's going to eat everything else breeding in the (laughs) pond and cause some kind of awful collapse in insect numbers. Well, like I say, this did work in some cases. Um, where, Where they got it from is southern Illinois, Indiana, throughout the Mississippi River sort of into northeastern Mexico, uh, but they've since been spread around the world. This is not just a single case of the cane toads, the mongoose, whatever. This is has been used around the world by different governments have used the mosquito fish to control mosquito out and associated diseases with mosquitoes around the world. So they've been dumped into South America, Australia, Russia, Ukraine, various parts of the US with varying degrees of excess. In Australia... Hello, Australia again. Uh, they're deemed pests that pose threats to native wildlife and outcompete them. So it didn't go so well in Australia. How? So what's going on there then? They're eating all of the insect larvae in the lake. Yeah. And none of the other fish have anything else so, to eat. Yeah. They're, they're, it's just adding an extra bit of competition, yeah. Yeah, which the whole yeah, the native stuff didn't need. Um, but in South America and Russia, they're considered a bit of a success by some. In fact, in Sochi, 
in Russia. That's where the Olympics were. It was. Mm-hmm. The mosquito fish is commemorated for eradicating malaria by a monument of the fish. Wow. There is a monument. They didn't show that on the Olympics. No. A monument of the mosquito fish. Imagine if that had worked with the uh, sort of snail or the mongoose and we had like giant bronzed statues of the <laughs> cannibal snail and the mongoose on your entry to Hawaii. The Honolulu had like snail day. Everyone yeah. just takes it off and dresses like a snail. Like. I think if anyone thinks of anything in Australia that wipes out the cane toad, there is a statue waiting for it. Oh, yeah. There's a statue waiting for you. If you, you as the listener, can think of a way of eradicating the cane toads, you write yourself into Australian history. Or if you take up arms and sort of hold the Western Front against these gangly toads. <laughs> but yeah, so they, they are sort of an example that has, in various parts of the world, for, for whatever reason, seems to have worked in some, um, but not in other. But they're still being bred. This is still something that's actively being used. In 2008, in some parts of California and Nevada, mosquito fish were bred in aquariums so people could stock stagnant stagnant pools of water uh, with mosquito fish to reduce the number of West Nile virus cases that were going around. So this is still something that's actively being used. I want to, and just quickly Googling them to see what they look like. Like I say, they're like a little guppy sort of thing. Oh, they're not. Yeah, I was wondering if I could get some from a tank. They're not attractive really at all. No, they're not. They're also not from Southeast Asia and... You're very particular about where the animals have to come from. whole other thing. (laughs) (laughs) We can dissect my journey in keeping fish another day. To anyone listening, I don't want to say don't, but... (laughs) But just really look into the finances (laughs) beforehand. Anyway, that's all I have on biological control, unless you have anything else to add. A lot of what we've heard so far, Australia, Japan, South America, Hawaii, far from home. Far from home for us here in humble Britain, where, you know, nothing ever goes wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But we know, of course, Japanese knotweed. Yeah. So Japanese knotweed is an invasive plant in the UK, in quite, in a lot of the world. Yeah. It's invasive. Highly invasive. Highly invasive. And it grows very, very quickly. And it's a very tough, very strong plant. And just to read about the damage and the impact it does here, the invasive root system and strong growth can damage concrete foundations, buildings, flood defences, roads, paving, retaining walls and architectural sites. It can also reduce the capacity of channels in flood defences to carry water and it shades out other vegetation, overgrows buildings, encourages fire and damages paved surfaces. (laughs) It's not great, is it? It's not great, and it's very difficult to remove. Can I mean, regrow from like any fragment, can't yeah, it? Yeah, in the UK, you need to get in specialists. It's very expensive. It can impact your ability to get a mortgage on a property. It's a whole thing if Japanese knotweed is there. Mm-hmm. And we've obviously been learning about biological uh, control. Uh-huh. A lot of what we saw was how it very quickly gets out of hand and goes mm-hmm. very wrong. So the decision was taken. <laughs> <laughs> The decision was taken on the 9th of March 2010 in the UK to release into the wild a Japanese psyllid insect, Aphalara itadori. Its diet is highly specific to Japanese knotweed and shows good potential for its control. Controlled release trials began in South Wales in 2016. I didn't know about this at all. Yeah. I only learned about this literally within the last two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And so this bug, it's a tiny, tiny little bug. It almost looks like a teeny, tiny cicada, and it's like a Uh sap. It's a true bug, I think, so it sucks sap. Um, 
out of the tree. And it has been shown to defoliate knotweed species substantially. I'm just going to read this bit about its effect on knotweed. Mm -hmm. So they feed on the knotweed's meristem, which is a tissue in the plant. And as a result of this feeding, the leaves are left twisted and bound together. The deformity caused by Aphalara itadori feeding reduces the photosynthetic rate, competitive agility, growth and total leaf area. They deplete the energy supply of knotweed, reducing the growth and root storage. This damage prevents the knotweed from growing back. Studies has indicated that a itadori release would result in extensive knotweed defoliation on and above below ground biomass. So they weaken the whole plant, whether it's yeah. above or below ground. A study in 2013 showed that more than 50% reduction in biomass after 50 days of um, it feeding on the yeah. feeding on the plant. Starts, yeah. Yeah. However, the study went on to add, a release would not be entirely risk-free. Some individuals of A. itadori displayed characteristics, and just before I finish this, I probably should have said at the start, these group of psyllid insects in Japan are so specific in their feeding that uh -huh. they literally feed just on knotweed, knotweed or just on this plant or just on this plant. So, so at the minute, everything you said so far sounds good. I'm like, they have a great effect. They're so specific to knotweed. We're not risking anything else. This is the effect they have. I'm so far team psyllid. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Some individuals, though, displayed characteristics of an ability to adapt and grow on non-target plants. Excellent. Great. <laughs> <laughs> however, Great. however, the fitness level of these individuals was near zero and may result in behavioral avoidance instead. Okay. So... As it stands, yeah, it's going well. On paper, mm. it's all gravy. <laughs> I think, yeah. And remember, this release as well was 10, 11 years ago. Mm. And if it had gotten out of hand, you're saying we're... I'd never heard of it. Exactly. So, you know, maybe it is ticking along just fine. But just to be aware that this biological control isn't some, you know, wild fancy of the Victorian era where they were sending toads around everywhere or you know, looking at rats and bringing in mongoose that are awake in the day. Yeah. It's still very much something that gets considered. And yeah. And, and I guess now with a little bit more science behind it, but when you release something into the wild, there are so many unknown species interactions mm. and how sort of variable the, uh, the species behavior can be that you really never know what's going to happen until you release it into the environment. Yeah. And yeah, I did not know that, especially one that it was happening here and, and two that it's happening sort of so recently. And there it is, just so you uh, yeah. Google it, get a picture, but it's teeny, 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 tiny. Oh, yeah. Absolutely tiny. Huh. There we go. Always learning on this podcast. Okay, it's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been submitted by Scott Place on Instagram, who has suggested the Tasmanian Devil. Ooh. Now, let's get to know our foe. It's a carnivorous marsupial found only in Australia. <laughs> Previously only on Tasmania, uh, but has been... Re it's like there's one in the room. <laughs> but has been recently reintroduced back to the mainland as well. I've never thought of trying to do sound effects in this segment, but... Um... Please don't make it a thing. <laughs> it's the size of a small dog. It's generally black with white patches. It's pretty squat, thick build, and weigh about six to eight kilograms. Mm. So, weapons. 
They have the most powerful bite relative to body size of any living mammalian carnivore. So they've got a very strong bite. The jaw can open to about 80 degrees, allowing the devil to generate a large amount of power that just tears meat, crush bones. Sufficient force to allow it to bite through thick metal wire. Jesus. When they try and trap Tasmanian devils, oh, yeah. they have to use reinforced traps because they can just bite through the normal ones. Wow. So they basically, what they basically think is there's a convergent evolution going on between Tasmanian devils and hyenas, mm. and that Tasmanian devils are doing a similar role in their environment because predominantly they scavenge things. Right. Although hyenas do do a lot of hunting. Um, but uh, yeah, Tasmanian devils are kind of going around and hoovering up lots of stuff. Mm. Um, they're not particularly fast. They are built to be more stocky. Um, for scavenging food and finishing off sick, injured, or slow-moving animals. They have a taste for wombats. But they can spin like a tornado, right? they can spin like a tornado. Yeah. (laughs) Um, They've got a taste for wombats uh, because they can hunt them because they're quite slow, uh, even though wombats are about three times or can be about three times the weight of a Tasmanian devil. Um, Very aggressive, as made famously in Looney Tunes. Yep. Um, And they solve a lot of their issues by biting. In fact, little interesting fact, the white marks that Tasmanian devils have are thought to draw biting attacks towards less important areas of the body. So the white marks are generally in areas where the Tasmanian devils would rather be bitten so that when they have their little scuffles at dawn and dusk when the light's not so good, that's where other Tasmanian devils attack and it draws them away from the nasty areas. So there you go. That's the Tasmanian devil. Roddy Shaw, how many Tasmanian devils are too many Tasmanian devils? Hmm... One thing you didn't mention in their weapons that I think is worth chucking out in there is they're also, they've got like a contagious form of cancer. They have. Yeah. Which is pretty grim and horrific. And yeah. they're in a bad state, the Tasmanian devils. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they like bite each other's face and then they get tumors growing and all the rest. So I definitely don't want Tasmanian face cancer. <laughs> no. Um, I just want to note that from the top <laughs> yeah they do because they're so aggressive and they solve all their issues by biting each other they are very yeah, susceptible to transmiss to passing on this transmissible form of cancer which has really impacted some of the population but contagious cancer is a bad day yeah you don't want that no it's not a great mix yeah so then we've got and they're like kind of spaniel size aren't they six to eight kilos yeah they can Bite through reinforced wire. Yeah. Luckily, I'm not made of reinforced wire. So that's Got that problem <laughs> solved. Take, take that. Take that, Tasmanian devil. Ah, uh, but we do know that. Okay. Right. Well, I know where I'm fighting them. Right. I'm fighting them in Looney Tunes land. Oh, okay. Because I'm going to be drawing like fake tunnels right. <laughs> on the sides of mountains yeah and then i can like spin my legs really fast and stay in the air i see yeah we're really yeah. opening up the court here yeah and we're going to play them at their own game so does that mean they have tornado powers i don't know well yeah i should say when you when we say tasmanian devil you will think of the tasmanian devil in looney tunes they look nothing like that no whatsoever no they not. are like a small dog yeah yeah but for the purposes of for the, yeah i mean absolutely <laughs> fight away okay so how, I mean, God, they're definitely going to be able to bite. So if they can bite through wire, they can probably bite. They can definitely go through bone, can't yeah, they? they can go through bone. Right. Can they go through big bone? Like uh, a leg? Could they bite I would, through a I leg? I think with enough time, 
with enough time. If they had a gnaw on my I, shin. I, yeah, I don't think they could. I don't think one clean bite could take your leg off. Clean, clean. You know, like, yeah, I don't think they could instantly snap your leg off. Yeah. Um, but they'd but have I think a they'd get it. through it. Yeah. I think it's because they're, they're relatively small. Yeah. They're not particularly fast as well. They can only run a, it's about nine miles an hour in short bursts. They're pretty slow. I have no idea how fast I can so. run in either burst. So I don't know what to That's do true. with that. Mo- <laughs> most animals are faster than us, I would say. Most yeah. mammals. But yeah, yeah. These, guys, these guys can't run particularly quick. They're quite low to the ground. They're going to be ankle, shin, knee biting. And then it's about dragging you down. Once you're on the floor, game over. They're savaging you. I'm changing it up. I'm mm. no longer in Looney Tunes land. I'm yep. going to fight that roller derby. Oh, hello. Now I've got roller skates, yeah. which are also going to give some kind of added protection uh-huh. to the general foot area. Yeah. Um, it definitely doubles my speed. Yeah. I'm pulling that fact out of nowhere yeah. that I'm <laughs> twice as fast on roller skates than I am on the foot, <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the old shoelace express. Yeah. And so... <laughs> Tasmanian Devils in a roller derby, and then I'm all, it's going to be mind games on them because mm. then I can draw like fake archways on bits of the thing and holes in the ground, and yeah. they're going to be like, "Oh my god!" It's because of you know they're so used to they're so know, used to that world to, to tune shenanigans. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna play some tune shenanigan mind games with them at the roller derby, right? And then if I trip up on the roller skates, though, it's game over. Yeah, because then they're going to be on me. It only takes one, I think, to like, you know, bite you, knock you, knock you off course, you're down, they swarm you. And then even if I get back up, face cancer. Face, yeah. So, you know, it's either an instant death or a very long drawn Yeah, exactly, right. (laughs) So how I've got, I reckon, a kick with a rollerblade, confused with the thing. I'm I'm in the 12 to 15 mark. 12 to 15? Oh, I think so. That's high. Again, I'm putting them as just a bit bigger than a dog. Like a small dog. I think they're quite thickly set. Yeah. Well, like a staffy. They're like a a chunky, actually. You you think you could take 12 to 15 staffies? No. (laughs) (laughs) While balancing on rollerblades. As I've said, yeah, and drawing elaborate, you know, (laughs) acme. 2D D constructs, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Yeah, once I put that back into Staffy numbers, Staffy maths, it didn't stack up. No. So, eight. Eight. Yeah. Eight. Eight and we're in. Roller Derby. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of How Many Geese Season 2. I can't believe we've even gotten to the end of a Season 2. I know. Thank you to everybody, of course, for listening, for sharing, for writing with your questions uh, and, and all the things that have helped to make this uh, this second season and the first one such a success as well. So if you've only just joined the show, do go back and listen to start episode one. If you've already listened to them all, listen to them all again. Because... <laughs> or tell somebody else to listen to them. <laughs> because the podcast statistic thing counts re-listens so. <laughs> yeah we we really appreciate it um so thank you for listening and, and sort of coming on this journey as we sort of figure out how to make a podcast we will be back and we hope you'll come back too we'll see you then bye bye